No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food. And my body is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father... So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This is the gospel of the Lord. Remain standing with me for a minute. I caught you before you did. Let us recite our faith together in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is so good to be uh, in the house of the Lord this morning and in uh, a new space for us. Uh, I've already said how grateful we are, and I could say it over and over again. It doesn't feel like it would really put into words how incredible it feels to be in the provision of God for us. 
when we prayed for a space coming into this fall that would allow us to move to Sunday mornings, um, we were immediately up against a couple of challenges, and we just trusted the Lord that he would be faithful, and so we prayed and started looking, uh, and he has more than answered our prayers in very specific ways with this space, and so we are incredibly happy and thankful. We came in here for the first time this summer and did one evening of worship, and I said to the guys after we practiced, and I told my wife when I got home, I said, it feels like home to me. Uh, and then we came in that night and we began to worship and we spent a couple hours in worship and I was leading worship that night and I opened my eyes up and I, I looked out and uh, I think Dave Van Das was laying on this front pew with his hands up in the air like this in the midst of worship and I thought, oh, I'm not the only one that feels at home. <laughs> you know. So we're just really thankful for a space that feels like home and I love when Sarah prayed for this space that she had in one point that prayer that the Lord, he welcomes us home like while we were yet sinners right he came and he found us and he welcomed us home and my prayer is that for all of us and certainly for others who will come in time that they walk into this space and encounter jesus feel like they've come home uh, throughout the history of humanity since the very creation god has sought to dwell with his creation to be in the midst of his people we look at the Genesis, you open your Bibles right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, and we have this, this incredible account of the Creator creating out of nothing. With the full of His power and creative power, He creates. And near the end of His creative work, He creates Adam and Eve, and He places them in the midst of His creation. And many Old Testament uh, teachers and uh, scholars would talk about that what was happening there very much, and even the way it's told in Genesis, in light of an ancient Near East kind of idea of temples, all around them would have been, as, the, as Genesis was written and as they were trying to articulate this, there would have been peoples who had temples and their gods resided in the temples. And so you, you really couldn't have sort of this detached idea of God in the world. And Moses had good news. As he put Genesis together, he says, this is exactly how God, the real, the God, the only God actually works. Is that he created and then he sets Adam and Eve like priests in the midst of the temple of his creation. And there he dwells with them. And we have this picture before the fall of Adam and Eve dwelling in the temple, in the garden, in the creation. And they act as priests over that creation as they care for and name the animals and kind of take care of this temple where God dwells with his creation. But we only have to keep going not very far in your Bible. It would only take you about, uh, depending on how fast you read, five to ten minutes to get to Genesis chapter 3. When sin enters the picture and the result of sin is a separation with God. This disobedience causes God to have no option but to drive, it says, Adam and Eve out of the garden. And so they were moved out of the garden and from there we see a bit of a different picture as it relates to humanity where now they're living in their sin and God is not dwelling with them in the same way. There's something needed. There's a reconciliation needed. And if Adam and Eve feel that loss, the good news is that if they feel that loss and a desire to regain that dwelling, to regain that place in relationship with God, even if they don't, God most certainly does. 
From the very moment that he needs to remove them from the garden, he goes at work to bring them back into that place with him. And he seeks throughout the history of humanity and the brokenness of our world to come and to dwell in the midst of that brokenness. To come close to his creation. To move in the ways he needs to to make it possible for them to come close to him again. It's a beautiful part of our God's heart. He created with an intention and he will not give up on that intention. It's an important thing to remember. A different part of the New Testament puts it this way. Uh, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. When God sets to something in a creative way, he does not give up on it. And we watch throughout the history of the scriptures as, as Noah builds a giant ark, you know, and then having gone through this whole story with Noah, God puts this rainbow in the sky and begins to speak. He says, listen, I am here. In the brokenness of this day, in the brokenness of this world, yes, I cannot just let this go because my creation's dying in the middle of this mess. So he builds a giant ark a place of home, a place of invitation to come into and be saved. To come into this place of God's dwelling. We move into Abraham's story and Abraham's story is just full of visible expressions and moves on the part of God to show His presence that I want to dwell with a people. Rams and thickets. And priests named Melchizedek and Isaac, his son himself, who never should have been born except by the miraculous hand of God who brought Isaac into the world. Not to mention the promises of God to him that he would set Abraham as a father over a people. And I will be their God and they will be my people. I will dwell with them. It just keeps going. Moses in his burning bush, he takes the people and the Red Sea is parted and then for 40 years in the wilderness, manna comes from heaven and God just continues to come. Pillars of fire and clouds that followed them by day and they walk in these spaces and then as the people of God come into the wilderness, God comes to Moses and he says, set up a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. A place where my presence the God who created you will come and dwell with his people. If you read through the time of the tabernacle, the people would often even come out onto the kind of, you know, front porch of their tents. I don't know what they called them. <laughs> Dust, dusty pile in the wilderness. And they would stand with their children and their wives and they, they would look to the tabernacle and see the glory of God come down as Moses would enter in. And they would be reminded, we're not alone. The God who created us has not given up on us like we gave up on him. He just continues to come in our story. And then in 1 Kings chapter 8, if you're walking through the daily office right now, you'll be familiar with these passages in 1 Kings. We're kind of reading in 1 Kings right now. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we have the completion of Solomon's temple. Solomon is the son to David, King David. And King David had it in his heart to build a temple, a house for the Lord, a place permanently for his glory to dwell. But God was very clear with David. He said, David, not in your lifetime. 
And he had some reasons for that. But he said, but I promise it will be done, and it'll be your son Solomon who does it. So 1 Kings chapter 8 is a fulfillment of this promise to David and a gift to the people of God as Solomon finishes the temple. And Solomon, you can read through like 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7. You know, I challenge you to actually read through them and read every word. I can't do it because it's all the dimensions of the temple. And then he built this, and it was this far from this, and it was this big for this. And you're just like, I'm trying, and I just can't, I just... Before you know it, I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch. But, it, it's, but what, what amazes me as I read it is the particularity with which God called him to build this place for his presence. He says, Solomon, there's a way this needs to be done. In fact, he told David, that's actually in a whole other sermon, he told David, and David passes that on to the next generation. Solomon knows what to do because his father told him. And so he builds this place. And once he had built it, the scripture said, according to the instructions of God, just the way God had instructed, and brought the Ark of the Covenant in and set the Ark of the Covenant, which was the throne, the seat of God's presence in the Holy of Holies, the glory of God's king says, filled the temple and the ministers could not get up to perform their duties. The presence of God came so strong. He came and he dwelt with them in such an incredible way that the priests couldn't get up off the floor. So here we have it again. God dwelling in his temple. And then the temple becomes this incredible place of worship. But when we come towards the New Testament, what we have is generations of a people of God who desire to have God dwell with him, who have watched the place of his dwelling, the temple, be completely taken down to the dirt. It's been completely destroyed. And so again, over and over again, God comes and he dwells with his people, but over and over again, for all kinds of reasons, it's not permanent. It continues to be this longing. This, there's still this need. We want to dwell with the Lord. But it seems to continually come and then be lost to us. Most often because of their own inability to abide and to stay in the presence. Unfortunately, if you continue to watch Solomon's life, he becomes not so godly of a man near the end of his life. And the kings that follow him, most of them, it's hard to read. And so God continues, though, throughout all of the ins and the outs to have at the deep of his heart. And this could speak to our lives today. If you have walked with God for a long time, and maybe even today you're in a season where you don't really feel like he's dwelling with you, learn from the stories who our God is and the character of our God. He never ceases to desire that. And he is relentless in his action and his effort to make it possible. And so we move into the New Testament. And we're going to look at the Gospel of John a bit today. John's Gospel, interestingly, starts right in the very first... What's the first thing that John's Gospel says? Anybody you know? First words? In the beginning. The same first words of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. And as we begin to read, we begin to realize John's speaking of Christ. It was Jesus. And then he talks about how Jesus comes 
and takes on flesh and dwells among us. Christ comes, and as we begin to walk, already already in, in John chapter 2, we have this interesting moment with Jesus where he talks about the destruction of the temple, which was probably not incredibly popular. He's getting some backlash. But the scriptures in John chapter 2 are clear to tell us that when he was there speaking about the temple, he was speaking about the temple of his flesh. Christ has come, God has taken on flesh and dwelt among us, and now, in a very real way, the temple is Christ. It's no longer tents, it's no longer structures, it's no, it is God himself in the flesh. And now the temple is among us. And as people become to Jesus, and they encounter Jesus, we see they're encountering God. The ones who have eyes to see and are paying attention are realizing when they spend time with this man, whether they're in the synagogue or the pub, heaven has come to dwell with men. Emmanuel, God with us. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, speaking of Jesus, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Our desire really, I think, in life, and certainly our desire as a church, is for fellowship. It's a, the Greek word is koinonia. It's for communion, for participation. We don't just want God to be in the room. We want to dwell with Him. We want to be with Him. We want to touch Him and be touched by Him. We want to, the words I use all the time, we want to encounter Jesus. We want what the Greek word koinonia wraps up. And what's incredible to me and a gift to us is that this koinonia, this fellowship with Christ, what the Bible begins to speak of of oneness, union with Christ, is something that if we want and we are set upon, God is so much more desiring and set upon. Because I don't know about you, but I can really want that, actually, like I'll be just really honest with you, I can really want that at 10 o'clock and be completely detached from it by 11 and need to come back to it again. Praise God that's not my every day, but I have days like that. I have seasons like that. But God never loses that trajectory. That he is always set on making a way for Josiah to dwell with him. For making it possible for the people of God at Via Langley, when they gather, to see and to recognize the promises of God in fulfillment, that he is there in their midst. That is, Anglicans often say, the Lord is here. And his spirit is with us. Why? Why would God be so relentless? Go to such lengths to dwell with us. Well, we can just stay with John's gospel, where some of the most quoted scriptures of the whole of the Bible are found in John chapter 3. And in verse 16, we're told that God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son. Why? Why is God so relentlessly pursuing this? It is very simple, but it is profound. He loves you. And he loves you completely. And he loves you unconditionally. And he loves you with a steadfast love. It's relentless. You can run as far and as hard as you want, and you will never escape the love that Christ has for you. We can reject it. We can turn our backs on it. And it will not stop. This is the good news of the gospel. And so God, out of a a heart of love for us, pursues us, seeks to dwell with us, to restore His created intention for humanity. God's desire, His heart, has always been to dwell with us. It always will be to dwell with us. And the breakdown in the dwelling is not a result of God's desire changing or an action or inaction that he has taken or not taken. It, in fact, is always coming back to us. When the dwelling gets interrupted, we need not look to God and try and figure out what he's done. Better to come to God and to ask him humbly if there's anything we should be aware of. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 25. Solomon says, Now therefore, Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only, and this is the part we pay attention to right now, if only your son pays close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. That to dwell in the presence of the Lord is to live in the way of the Lord. And when we don't, God remains the same. But our lives feel a lot different. John uses a language throughout. I've been using the word dwell over and over. Um, it's translated, it's a, it's a Greek word, metanoia. It's translated sometime abide. We sang a song this morning, abide. It's translated sometimes remain. To remain, to abide, to dwell. This is the invitation of God to us. And in John chapter 15, we looked at this at our camp out this summer, he calls us very clearly like branches to abide in the vine. To come and to live, to dwell with Christ. The Lord is here. And his invitation to you today is to come and dwell with him. The good news is if you're not dwelling with him, even in just an area of your life, you can change that today. Because God has made a way for you to return to the place of dwelling. How? How do we enter into this? How do we dwell? And I, I remember preaching on John chapter 15 a couple of years back, and a man came to me after, a seasoned man of faith. And so it wasn't like a Sunday, you know, it wasn't like a, he'd never been to church before the question. It was like a deep man of faith who'd been pursuing God for the longest time, and I loved his humility. He said to me, Chad, I love these sermons on abiding. It's so good. He says, how? And I was humbled, because I looked up like this is a man of God. And I thought, well, I could probably get a little more humble, I admit. I've got the same question. 
It's been the question of the people of God for eternity. How? How do I enter into the grace? How do I live in, in relationship with Jesus? How do I walk into an encounter? And how do I there abide and remain? When my heart seems to be so all over the place and I have these tendencies that change the course of my day and my, you know, um, I'm like Sting says, all four seasons in one day. Like, how do, how do I take that reality and remain, Chad? How do I abide? How do I dwell? Sounds incredible. Many of you would say, I agree, it is the longing of my heart. How? Well, praise God, He didn't just tell us to do it, invite us to do it, and then leave us with no kind of instruction. How do we enter into and remain in the koinonia with God? Enter into the fellowship of the Trinity and stay there. I want to put to you this morning, as we begin to worship in this space, and we come in this fall back into worship out of our summer together, I want to call you back to the table. I want to suggest that the gift of God to us in the Eucharist was a a major way. I would go as far as to say the primordial way. The main way. Certainly we dwell with God in all kinds of spaces and ways. But when Christ at the Last Supper stood up at the table and said, guys, do this in remembrance of me. He gave us a way to abide. And let me break down why I would say that. And then I'll give you a quote so that you know it's not just me. John chapter 6, the gospel passage that I read for us today. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And of course, he immediately is hearkening back to the people. This is after he's fed the 5,000, so he's given them And they've eaten that bread, and then they won't leave him alone. But Jesus says, I love it. I'm glad you like me. I like you too. But please leave me alone. If all you need is bread, go to the grocery store. You're missing it. I am the bread of life. Let me take you back to Moses. Let me take you back to the wilderness. When God provided bread from heaven for 40 years, The people wanted not for their food because God miraculously provided it to them in the wilderness in the form of manna. The fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died, Jesus says. And everyone goes, yeah, good logic. We follow that. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and never die. And the bread, Jesus said, that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. I lay down my very life. And of course, he foreshadows the cross where his body would be broken for us. His blood would be shed for us. And in the institution of the Eucharist, Christ prepares a way for us to consistently enter into the temple. The place of the very real presence of God. How do we abide? Uh, If I had a key text today, it would be John chapter 6, verse 56 to 57. 
part of what I read, where it says that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. There's that word again. Dwells, remains. So that right there is why I'm making the point that I'm making today. Because I believe that Christ in the Gospels pointed us in this way. If you want to abide, if you want to dwell, come to the table. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And I in him. I just love the gift of the Eucharist. I've said this, those of you who've been around many times, I'm a simple man. And so when you can keep things simple, that works for me. And when I take bread and I take wine, and in the presence of God, I take them into my body. There is a visible physical thing happening, but there is an invisible and spiritual reality that is just as real, but far more powerful. That as we take of the bread and the wine, we ab- the Lord abides in, we abide in the Lord, but the Lord abides in us. We are literally taking God into our beings, physically, in the physical but in the spiritual at the same time, we are receiving the grace, the presence, the dwelling of God with us. As the living Father sent me, Christ said, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. To come into that life, to come into that abiding is what happens when we come to the table. In the sacrament of the Eucharist, we enter into the temple. But mind-blowingly, the temple enters into us. And suddenly at Pentecost, we see fire come down upon people in power. And they are filled with the temple of the Holy Spirit. So much sure that Paul will say later, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your flesh has become the temple of the presence of God. And so as we come to the table and we receive Christ in our lives fresh every week, then we go out and Christ dwelling in us, suddenly as we dwell with others, Christ dwells with them. That's why I love our home gatherings. Because I always like to say, when we come here, we come around the Lord's table together and we feast. And then next week we take that feast and we set our tables and we invite others to come. And when we host them at our tables, be it at our home gatherings or just on a Friday night when you invite your neighbors for dinner, when you host somebody at your table and you break bread, who hosts them? You or Jesus? My answer, yes. You are the temple of the living God. And the temple of his flesh has has come into you. We've got all kinds of um, insufficient ways to try and put words to the glory and the mystery of it. St. Hilary of Poitiers, who was a bishop in the early 4th century, said this, and there's a quote, George, we'll put it up if you can help me out. I like quotes because they usually say things way better than I can. In the sacrament of his body... He actually gives us His own flesh, which He has united to His divinity. I'll just put a little caveat on this for those of you who can't listen to me anymore because you 
in our day and age, you think that I'm talking about transubstantiation, that somehow, some of you are going, I don't know what you mean. Those of you who do, this will help you. That we're, we're not talking about the, the bread and the wine that we will take changing physical form. But we are also recognizing that as we consecrate that bread and that wine, it is no longer the same. That it has taken on a spiritual reality. And this comes back, and this is a whole other, probably not a preach, it's probably a class. And we can do that together, or we can go for coffee. But I just want to put it to, to rest for a minute so you can hear the quote for what it's worth. Okay? In the sacrament of his body, he actually gives us his own flesh, which he has united to his divinity. This is why we are all one. Because the Father is in Christ, and Christ is in us. He's in us through his flesh, and we are in him. Many of you have talked about the gift of community here. That's why you're experiencing what you're experiencing in a place of community. It's not just because this is a great group of people. It is. But it's because Christ dwells in us, and in him we are one. The point is this. That Christ is the wellspring of life. And since we who are in the flesh have Christ dwelling in us through his flesh, we shall draw life from him in the same way that he draws life from the Father. When we come to the table and you receive the bread and the wine, you are over and over again celebrating, entering into, in worship, the reality of God's love for you. You are entering into the unity of yourself with him as your God. And so in response uh, today to the invitation, really if I could sum up my, my teach, my invitation to us today as we come into this new space, it's to come and to encounter Jesus. And so we will set this table every time and invite you to come and to having heard the word of God, to take active steps into encountering Jesus. Our deep desire to abide in koinonia with God is met in a profound way here at the table. When, as Christ taught us, we do this in remembrance of him. As we continue to live life together as a church, it's our desire to do that in koinonia, in fellowship, in communion with Christ and with each other. And so I invite you uh, this morning and as we live our life together to the table. Let's pray.